If you are here for the very first time, this is a phenomenal Sunday to check in with us um, because we have been walking through the book of Acts, and today we're starting a new series as we continue through the book of Acts. And so as you open your Bibles, you're going to need to be in Acts chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 25 today. And as you turn there, let me just kind of set the stage for just a little bit. Um, Also, if you do not have your Bible with you, um, the ushers walking down the aisle can hand you a Bible. If you do not have a hand of Bible with you, just throw your hand up and we can put one in your hand. So Acts chapter 1 through 28, really through the end of the book, there's going to be one primary theme. And this theme focuses on this character by the name of Paul, who was a prolific church planter who started many churches, who went back and encouraged many churches. And the whole emphasis of Acts chapters 21 through 28 is Paul's making his way to Rome. Paul is making his way to Rome. Now, he's going to make an important stop in Jerusalem first, which is what we're going to see today, but he's making his way to Rome. And so Acts chapters 21 through 28 is really about how he gets there, what he does along the way, why he must go, and what that means for us. That is what the books of of the last chapters of Acts is about. But remember, the Bible is not just a history book, y'all. It tells us history. It has poetry. It has all these other elements of genre and story and narrative. But the Bible is not primarily a history book. It is primarily God's revelation to us of Jesus Christ and his redemptive history. And so you're going to hear lots of names and places and dates, but don't get lost in the milieu of the setting and the context. Although important, zoom in on what God is saying through these things as we look at the text and the passage today and for the rest of the book. The overall theme for these last chapters is simple. Although it's primarily the details about Paul making his way to Rome, the heart of it is really whatever it takes. Simple title. I don't know if it's catchy or not, but it really is accurate if you look at Paul's life because he's going to go with a flint-like resolve to Rome through Jerusalem. And he's going to have to decide in his heart that whatever God calls me to do, whatever it costs me, is worth it. Whatever God calls me to do, whatever it costs me, is worth it. And so as we look at Paul's sufferings and trials and hardships, the question that I'm going to be asking myself and asking you is, is this true of me? If I say with my mouth that I love the Lord Jesus Christ, if I've confessed him as my Lord and my Savior, do I have this resolve to follow him wherever he may take me? That's the question that's going to be posed before us today. So as we begin this journey in Acts chapter 21, we're going to see three things primarily in this passage. One, we're going to see a relationship restored. Then we're going to see a righteous resolve. And then lastly, we're going to see a reconciling response in the passages. Acts chapter 21, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. After we tore ourselves away from them, we set sail for Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus, passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre, since the ship was to unload its cargo there. We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey, while all of them, with their wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, 
we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship, and they returned home. When we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. The next day, we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Stop here for just a moment. So verses 1 through 6 is really just Paul navigating his way from Ephesus to Caesarea. He spent three years preaching and teaching and living among the Ephesians, the people in the city of Ephesus, which is a real city today. And he was so loved that the Bible talks about in verse 20, in chapter 21, verse 1, we saw that he had to tear himself away from them. So this was a sad goodbye. This is what's happening. He had to leave people that he had been with for years. He loved dearly, had seen grow in the faith, and he's having to leave them because he had resolved in his heart, I've got to go to Jerusalem. And so although they asked him to not go, which we saw, he still had resolved to go. I want to zoom in on verses 7 through 9. Look back there really quickly. It says, when they completed the village, they greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for their day. Then they left and went to Caesarea, where he, we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. A quick side note, um, you see the virgin daughters who prophesied, and this is your first time seeing something like that, that may stand out to you. Here's a simple point, and if you want to know more, come back on a Wednesday night and we'll unpack this a little bit more. Virgin daughters who prophesied basically is an affirmation of what Luke has been doing throughout the, his gospel and throughout the book of Acts, that women have a role in the church. He didn't have to mention his four virgin daughters. He didn't have to mention that they prophesied. Luke is going out of his way to say, hey, from the early days, there are women. The word prophecy really just means to proclaim the will of God. Sometimes it's proclaiming the future. Sometimes it's encouraging in the present. But either way, these women had a, had a word from the Lord to give to the church, and it was accepted, and it was good. Somebody should say amen. amen. Women have a place in the church. Side note. The main point of this passage that really struck me was, whose house is he staying at? Look at verse 7 and through 9 again. He's staying in the house of Philip. Now, for those who've been tracking for a little bit, you may, that, may name, that name may sound familiar. Where have we heard that Philip the name before? It is my name. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate that. <laughs> He's a Bible scholar, man. I'm trying to tell you. We got a good one. We've heard it before because in Acts chapter 6, right, there was the, the first dispute in the church. What was the first dispute about? The feeding of the widows. Church is a team sport, y'all. Y'all work with me. The feeding of the widows. And so to resolve this, there was this Gentile group, which is basically anybody who wasn't a Jew, and there was this Jewish group, and the, the Gentiles felt like, hey, man, we're not getting what they're getting, and we feel like it's on purpose. We feel like we're being slighted a little bit. We feel like there's some ethnic and racial tension here that we're not getting treated equally. And so to solve this problem, there were several men chosen. One of those brothers was Philip to serve the, the widows, basically run a food pantry for the church, kind of an early deacon-type role in the early church, the first deacons to serve alongside the elders of the church. Now, why is that amazing that Paul is staying with Philip? Pop quiz. Who knows the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts? Stephen. What was Stephen's job in the church? He was one of the seven. He was also a deacon who served alongside 
Philip. And who was there the entire time while Stephen was being stoned? Paul. Paul. Acts chapter 6, verse 5. This proposal, this idea of, of choosing seven men pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolas, a convert from Antioch. Those men who were chosen, remember Stephen and Philip were chosen together. They were co-laborers in the deacon role, the first deacons of the first church. Fast forward a little bit, Acts chapter 7, well, right after Acts chapter 6, Stephen is accused of blasphemy by the Jewish leaders. Acts chapter 7, verse 57, after Stephen gives his response, basically giving a redemptive history of the nation of Israel, they accuse Stephen of blasphemy. He said, not only am I not blaspheming, but actually you are for rejecting the Messiah who was promised to come. And we pick up the story in verse 57. When they heard this, they yelled at the top of their voices, the religious leaders at the time. They covered their ears and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who is also called Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul, or Paul, agreed with putting him to death. So the reality is, Paul got his homeboy Stephen killed. Now, I don't know what kind of Jesus Philip got. But if you, let me, let me picture this. No one knows what stoning is. Let me, give you, let me give you a replay of what stoning looks like. There's several ways that you would stone somebody. Uh, one of the ways was they would break your legs so they couldn't run. So they'd break your legs first, and they would take these huge boulders, and they would pick them up and drop them on you until you were dead. This isn't like kids throwing rocks at windows. This is a brutal way to die. It's not just meant to kill people. It's meant to punish people. We're going to kill you in a barbaric way to punish you and to set you as an example that no one should ever do this again. That's what Saul or Paul said was the right thing to do to Stephen. Philip's co-laborer, Philip's fellow deacon, Philip's friend, most likely, who served together in the early church. And you fast forward a couple decades, and all of a sudden, this same man, Paul, is staying at Philip's house with his children and his family. One thing that we have to remember, church, is that the, the people that we read about in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, they don't have any more of the Holy Spirit than we do. These aren't these model saints. These are real people trying to love God and love other people. And yet we see these glimpses of just supernatural grace at work. I don't know if there's enough time for, for someone to stay at my house with my family who had killed my friend. Is there for you? So what's the point here? Once again, the Bible is not a book of history. It is a book of prophecy and encouragement and revelation to us. So the point is, we see a relationship restored how? How, what can make someone say, you can stay with me? There was other people, other houses that Paul could have stayed at. There was other people who would be willing to host the greatest evangelist in the world at the time. Why did Paul choose to stay with Philip? I believe that it wasn't accidental. I believe it was intentional. Because Paul's whole goal is to, to be an agent of building the church. And he's been walking that tension between Gentile and Jew. He's been walking this tension between trying to reconcile these two groups the whole time. And so he is an agent of reconciliation. 
So one of the ways that he tries to demonstrate that is, hey, we've worked this out. And Philip, by God's grace, seemingly forgives Paul and invites him to his home. Quick, let me, let me tell you why this is important. Why could not, let me, how many people know that Jews could not have a Gentile into their home and Jews could not go into the home of a Gentile? We talked about that in the Jewish-Gentile divide several weeks ago. Why was that? Why was, why, what was it about that inviting somebody into your home that made it a sin according to the Jewish law? Because when you invited somebody into your home, it, it showed closeness and intimacy. It showed oneness and unity. And so the Jews were not allowed to invite Gentiles into their home because we are not united. We have different gods. We're on a different page. So you can't come over my house. I can't come over yours. So Paul staying at Philip's house is a sign of reconciliation, a sign of, no, we're, we're one. We're united in this. The relationship has been restored. Y'all, we have a message The gospel message is big enough to heal wounds and to cause enemies to become friends. We have a gospel message that's so big, not only our enemies become our friends, but they may become our brothers and sisters in Christ. That coworker that you have, that hard relative that you have, that person should be your brother and sister in Christ. We shouldn't withhold the gospel from them because they're hard to talk to. We shouldn't hold the gospel encouragement from them because we feel like they got this mess into themselves. They got themselves into this mess. They deserve what they got. No, the gospel that we believe and the gospel that we see in the Bible is big enough to heal those wounds in your heart and to see those relational scars being made whole over time. A relationship restored. So Paul is staying with Philip, but what is he doing? He's kind of camping out in Caesarea for just a little bit, but he is determined to go to Jerusalem. Pick up in verses 10 through 14 of Acts chapter 21. After we had been there for several days in Caesarea with Philip, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us. He took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we, now Luke is saying, hey, me too, both we and the local people pleaded with him, Paul, to not go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul said, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not only ready to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we said, no more, the Lord's will be done. This is the central truth of this passage, and the central truth that we're going to see in Acts chapters 21 through 28 every week and week out, is Paul had a righteous resolve. Paul had a righteous resolve. He had determined in his heart that I'm going to do what the Lord called me to do. Now, this is not the first time Paul had been warned, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go this way, you're in danger. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 23 says, I am now on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, Paul says, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. Acts chapter 21, 3 and 4, after we sighted Cyprus, passing to the south, we sailed onto Syria and arrived at Tyre. When the ship unloaded its cargo, it said they sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. What did they say while they were there? It said, through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And now here in verses 10 through 12, this is at least the third time the disciples have said, Paul, don't do this. 
Paul, don't go. But what's interesting is this is the first time a known prophet, Agabus, has actually declared that there's danger involved. And what's interesting to me is that Agabus doesn't give a, an interpretation. He just says, Paul, the guy who owns this belt, is going to be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. What he doesn't say is important, though. He doesn't say, don't go. He just says, if you go, there is suffering ahead. This is a timely reminder for us, church. You see, we here, um, and you should also, we should reject the explicit prosperity gospel that is preached in churches on Sundays. That God is bound to make you materially wealth and every struggle from Satan should be avoided. That's what the prosperity gospel says. That God is bound to do this. He has to do this. He has to give you material, physical wealth. And if you don't have it, it's your fault. We should reject that. That is not the gospel. But there is a more subtle kind of evangelical prosperity gospel that says every opportunity is from God. Every every paid promotion, every job promotion, every open door is from God, and every bad thing and every struggle is from Satan and should be avoided. Let me give you an example. This example has rung out in my ears. So I remember being uh, staff at a church, the church that I planted uh, reading out of. Um, we were having a conversation, and there was this brother that we were, has been working, had started a new job. Um, he had been joined the church several years ago and really been growing in the church. His family was flourishing in the church, had really come to know his faith for himself, and was maturing as a young man, a young man of God. Then all of a sudden, his job gave him a promotion. And that promotion was going to take him out of the state. Now, the weird thing to me was there was an immediate rejoicing from pretty much everyone in the church. Man, praise God for your promotion, brother. I was like, but should we, though? He's healthy. He's planted. Things are, God is moving. He is growing. Now, just because it's more money, it must be from God. Even though it takes him out of his local context, even though it takes him away from his family, even though it takes him away from all the things that have been used to heal him and his family, just because it's more money? That just wrong is there's this subtle evangelical prosperity gospel that rationalizes every decision that makes us safer, more comfortable, and richer. Any decision that enriches us must be from God. Any decision that discomforts us must be an attack from the enemy. Maybe I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to me. That's okay. Get quiet. You see, these warnings that God is giving through his people, they aren't, they aren't, men, they aren't designed to change Paul's mind. They're designed to prepare his heart. Paul, there is suffering. I'm not saying don't go. I'm saying there's suffering. Every opportunity does not come from God, dear Christian. Every open door was not opened by God, and not every struggle is from Satan. Not every opportunity is from God to bless us, and not every struggle is from Satan to break us. Sometimes God sends hard things to do something that he can't do otherwise in us. And sometimes the enemy sends good things to distract us to make us run from the discomfort of discipleship and run to the safety of being unknown or being celebrated on a 
bigger platform. Don't trust every open door and don't discount every struggle. Paul heard their words of saying there is suffering lying ahead, and he says, yeah, I know. How did he know? Because they may have forgotten, but Paul remembers his call. You see, Paul was a raging unbeliever. Remember, he okayed and sat at the the, the feet and held the coats of the people who stoned Stephen. He was a persecutor of the church. He was anti-Jesus and anti-the church. What happened? He got saved, y'all. And when he got saved, he got a clear call from the Lord. Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, a man named Ananias was told to go pray for him. Ananias did not want to go pray for him. And so to encourage Ananias to tell him why you should go do this, God gave him a glimpse of what God is going to do through Paul. But the Lord said to him in verse 15, go, this man, talking about Paul, is my chosen instrument to make my name, to take my name to the Gentiles, to kings, and to Israelites. Amen. God wants to use you. God's going to give you opportunities to speak and proclaim and declare the mercies and the wonders of God. Amen. Oh, by the way, I will show you how much he must suffer for my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You may have heard, you know, you know live for the glory of God or the, you know, living for the name of Jesus. And those are kind of Christian cliches, not cliches, but kind of Christian phrases that we use. What that means is we live to make Jesus famous. We, may, we live to make him more known and more loved through our life. We don't live just so that people know the name Jesus. We live so that people associate the name Jesus with the power of salvation. And so when you hear we should live for God's glory, that's not a weird or complicated thing. It literally just means we live to make God known and loved through our life. So I need to live in such a way that points to him in a way that's aligned with who he is. A few weeks ago, Pastor Jake reminded us that this is not a new condition for Paul. He had been resolute in his heart from the beginning, Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Paul speaking, he says, I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to fit my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Paul is saying it doesn't matter what happens to me. It doesn't matter. My job, my only aim in life is to do what he called me to do. And he can attach anything he wants to with it. He can attach joy and provision and more than enough and friendships, or he can attach suffering and pain and tears and loneliness. He can attach whatever he wants to it. I'm committed to God's will. That's why he could say in verse 13 of chapter 21, I am not only ready to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. I remember a chaplain friend of mine, you may have heard me say this before, says the world is not waiting for a greater explanation of Christianity. It's waiting for a greater demonstration of Christianity. The world has heard us talking about how good our God is. They have heard us singing songs about how great our God is. But there are some who are waiting for our lives to reflect how good our God is. 
Because we choose him over sin. We choose him over lust. We choose him over greed. We choose him over fill in the blank. We choose him. That's the thrust of not just today's message, but hopefully that's the thrust of Christian maturity as we are walking down the path together as a family. We resolve in our hearts that, God, whatever it takes, your will be done. Your will be done. Remember those words. We'll come back. So Paul has this righteous resolve to to go to Jerusalem and resolve because he won't be persuaded otherwise and righteous because he's not going for his own comfort or safety or prosperity. He is going to make Jesus known and loved and to obey the call of God on his life. And then Paul will get an immediate opportunity to test this resolve. Is he really willing to do whatever it takes? Look at verse 15 of chapter 21. So he just said, I will not be persuaded any, no more. Let the Lord's will be done. After this, verse 15, they got up, they got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to say, When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So he finally made it to Jerusalem. Verse 19, after greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God and said, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Let me pause here for just a second. So, What's clear is that Paul is going to Jerusalem, but the book of Acts actually doesn't tell us why. He just says in in chapter 19, he resolves for the first time to go to Jerusalem, but the book of Acts doesn't tell us why. We don't actually find out until we read a book like 1 Corinthians chapter 16 or Romans chapter 15. The reason Paul is going to Jerusalem is he has taken up a gift. There There are Jews, there are Christians, there are Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering. And poverty is is among them. So he had taken up this offering from all these other churches, and he is coming to Jerusalem to present this gift of aid from the churches. So that's Paul's goal in going to Jerusalem, is I want to report back all that God did through the Gentiles, because that's kind of home base for Paul. Every time he's gone someplace else, he always circles back through Jerusalem. So he's coming back to home base to report, hey, look what God has done. Oh, and by the way, I have this check for you to help feed people and take care of people. But look what happens. Even with this gift in hand, even as they said they glorified God in verse 20, look what the immediate shift is. Probably James speaking here. He said, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law, but they have been informed about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. Therefore, so what is to be done? Verse 22, they will certainly hear that you have come. Verse 23, therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourselves along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. And everyone will know that what they told you, what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. Pause there for a second. What's happening right now? This Jew-Gentile tension is yet to be resolved. 
You see, the Jews have been taught their whole life that we are the people of God, and what marks the people of God are these dietary restrictions that we see in the Old Testament, the mark of circumcision that we see in the Old Old Testament, the celebration of these feasts and, and Sabbaths and festivals. All these things mark the family of God. The Gentiles don't do this. They do these things. We do church like this. They do church like that. They're wrong. We're right. They need to get on our page. As a matter of fact, Paul, we hear that you've been telling them they don't have to do these things. <laughs> Here's what I love about James. Yo. Look at verse 21. He's like, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews here who have believed? This is, this is James' way of saying, hey, man, it's not me. I'm cool with it. It's these other Jews. You see, like, see how you're trying to play it off on other people? Now, there's some, you know, historians, have to, they try to pull out this tension between James and, and, and Paul and this kind of ongoing rivalry. That's not in the text. We don't know that. But it seems to me that James would be like, hey, man, it's not me. I don't care. It's cool with me, but they have a problem with it. So for your sake, once again, I don't care. For your sake, why don't you just do this super Jewish thing so that people can be like, oh, no, he's cool with us again. That's what they're asking Paul to do. This vow, most likely uh, the vow of the Nazarites, if you're one of the, the Bible nerds like me, when you know what everything means, you can go to Numbers chapter 6 and read about the vow of the Nazarite. Um, if you just want a quick explanation, think Samson, right? So Samson couldn't cut his hair, lived a little differently. That's kind of the Nazarite vow. It was a, sign, it was a vow of purification. It was like an intense fast for a Jew. So like, hey, man, do this super Jewish thing, and then that'll let everybody know that you're really one of us. Now... Here's, here's the part that got me when I read this. Here, Paul, he had just traveled around the known world, planting churches, encouraging churches, training up elders, and along the way of, of doing all of that, being jailed and beaten and kicked out of cities, among all of that, he had raised money for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. He showed up with Jerusalem with money in hand saying, guys, not only did I plant a bunch of churches, not only did I see the Lord move through power and fire, not only did I see all that, but along the way I had to get a bunch of money to help you guys and help you out. And the first thing was, yeah, man, praise God, praise God, but about the Jewish thing, though. And once again, I'm not talking about you, maybe I'm just talking about me. I don't know if I would have had a response like Paul had. Like, oh, that's a problem? Cool. Give me back back that check. Like, cool. Y'all got a problem with how I'm doing ministry? Y'all got a problem with what I'm preaching? Not a problem. Y'all do whatever y'all want to do. Y'all go home. I'm taking my ball. I'm going straight home. But what does Paul do? Paul, who had just felt the forgiveness and the grace and the love of Philip as he had stayed in his home. What does Paul do? Paul says, all right. If that's what it'll take to not offend the brothers that I love, even though they're wrong, maybe they're just young, immature Jewish Christians who still hold tightly to these Jewish laws, even though they're wrong, he responds with a a posture of reconciliation of saying, okay, it'll cost me nothing to do this, and I'll do it. If you're struggling with why Paul is doing this, let let me make it clear that this isn't talking about salvation. The Jewish Christians at the time believed that salvation is only made possible through Jesus Christ by faith, through the power of the Holy Spirit. This isn't talking about salvation. He's talking about maturity and who is part of the family of God. If you want the $5 word version, this is not soteriology. This is ecclesiology. So we believe that you're saved by faith in Jesus, 
but the mark of a mature Christian, in their words, in their vernacular, would be circumcision, would be observing these fasts and feasts. So this isn't about who is in. This is about how do we know who's in. There's a slight difference here. So this wasn't Paul being anti-gospel to go along with this. God would never call us to do anything that denies the truth. Like, just like, hey, man, I walked into the room that everybody was doing drugs. I didn't want to offend nobody, so I just did drugs. Like, that's not what's happening, right? This is not, I don't know why I use extreme examples all the time. <laughs> this isn't you just going along with sinful behavior. This isn't you just going along with anti-gospel behavior. Matter of fact, we're going to see Paul vigorously refute any anti-gospel behavior, calling out even Peter in other, in other passages of Scripture for walking out of step with the gospel. This isn't a gospel issue. This is, a, this is just a, a how-we-do-church issue. Y'all sing hymns? Okay, fine. We'll, okay, where's the hymn book? Let me the hymn book. Y'all do tight jeans and, and, and shaved heads? Okay, cool. Let me, let me... Like, this is Paul just accommodating how people do church and ecclesiology, how people are in. This is him just contextualizing. I preached at the United Methodist Church next door for a Monday-Thursday joint service between us and them. And their, and their liturgy on most, uh, most Sundays, especially these holy days, they wear robes with the, the little, you know, the little robe thing with the little, you know, tassel deal. So I didn't go over there and be like, man, shh, at Radiant, we just, hey, I'm coming like I'm coming. If you want me, you're going to get me. Like, I didn't do that. Like, I'm, I'm being invited to, to deliver the word at your church. The least I could do is put on a robe. Like, what's the big deal? This is Paul having a posture of reconciliation, a posture of submission that says, you know what? Amen. I love you guys. So his first response wasn't even correction. He doesn't even teach them differently. His first response is compassion. And that's what got me as I was reading this story personally, is like maybe I would have eventually got there to Paul. Eventually I would have taken the vow. But I don't know if my first default response would have been compassion. I think it would have been correction. Like, all right, I'm going to do it, but just so y'all know, the gospel doesn't, like, he doesn't even do that. He just says, man, I, okay. He has a posture of reconciliation. For them, this is what marks a mature believer. And so Paul, not wanting to offend and not being in sin or anti the gospel, he complied. So at Radiant, just give it a modern-day example. We define a faithful, mature disciple as someone who's devoted to four things. Someone who's devoted to prayer, someone who's devoted to the Bible, someone who's devoted to generosity, and someone who's devoted to fellowship. So we would say at Radiant Church, that's how you know that you're a mature and growing believer, is you are growing in your devotion to those four things. We pull that from Acts chapter 2, um, verses 42 through 47. But for their church, it wasn't devoted to prayer, Bible, generosity, and fellowship. It was circumcision. It was vows. It was Nazarites. And so he said, okay. It wasn't about being saved. It was about the marks of maturity. One thing they, these disciples had yet to do was to separate their culture from the cross. The reason the Jews insisted upon this first is because for them, their culture was equal with Christianity. And we've spent much time at Radiant trying to unpack that and separate that, but we're all guilty of it. And these songs are just more holy than those songs. I can't believe y'all don't wear suit and tie on Sunday. That's irreverent and unholy. Am I making this up? We've heard these things before, right? 
We, we, tend to, we tend to interweave the gospel of Jesus Christ in our cultural preferences, and the Jews, are, these people are doing no different than what we, we are guilty of. If you want to really get saved, you need to, you need to, you need to get a different haircut. You need, to take, you need to take that outfit that you're wearing, and you need to wear something different. You need to look like fill in the blank. And Paul didn't respond with correction or condemning. He didn't respond with taking his check and leaving. He responded with saying, okay, I'll do that. I'll do that. This is the call of the Christian, y'all. This is the call of the Christian. Because the reality is, God is not going to call most of us to die on the mission field. But he will call you to die to self every day around people. God may call some of us, and I hope God calls some of us, to the foreign mission field and to the local mission field. Because North Charleston needs Jesus too, y'all. But if he doesn't, I promise you, you have an opportunity even today to die to self and just letting something go that somebody says. Just being deferent and gracious when someone does and says the wrong thing. Say, you know what? I got it. Don't worry about it. Instead of picking every battle, instead of picking every fight, just allowing for grace to cover a multitude of sins, there will be an opportunity even today to do that, and that's the call of the Christian. So as I close, the question that I started with is the question that I'll end with. Are we willing to say whatever it takes? to know what God has said and to hold on to that with a rabid tenacity no matter what comes, whether it comes with ups or whether it comes with downs, no matter what it takes. I believe, remember in Acts chapter 21, verse 14, it'll be on the screen. Remember that phrase that the, the believers said, the Lord's will be done? I believe Luke was doing something intentional. He, he brought up how Paul was resolute to go to Jerusalem. He brought up how they prayed the Lord's will be done. Where have we heard those words before? Where have we heard someone that was bound to go to Jerusalem? Where have we heard someone who was about to face suffering and yet said the Lord's will be done? You see, Paul is not our highest example of submission to God's will. Jesus is. Matthew 26 then Jesus came to them with a place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will but as you will. And a second time in verse 42, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, this cup of your wrath, your will be done. You see, Paul wasn't being a trailblazer by following God's will, even to the point of death. There had, somebody, there had been somebody who'd gone before Paul. Jesus, the the spotless son of God, the slain lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, bent down on his knees, laid his face to the ground, and said, Lord, your will be done. If he would, what excuse do we have? He who was about to drink the full cup of God's wrath. We can't even understand how bad that is, y'all. The Bible says that Jesus was sweating teardrops of blood because he, he knew God. 
He had spent an eternity in the Trinity in the triune presence of God, so he knew the terrible wrath that he was about to suffer for us. And even in a moment of absolute humanity, he said, God, if there's another way, if there's another way to save a people, if there's another way to forgive Philip's sins, if there's another way to forgive your sins, God, show me that way. Because this way seems too hard. And in the same breath, he said, Lord, your will be done. We are called to come and follow Jesus, y'all. That is the call of being a Christian, is to lay your life down so that you can take up your life again, but that life is hidden in Jesus Christ. As not just your Savior from God's wrath, but as your Lord, boss, king, master. So if you do not know Jesus Christ here, this idea of trusting your life to God may seem reckless, and if you don't know him, it is, because God is not on your side. You and him are enemies. It may not feel like that because you didn't get all the bad stuff you deserve. You have this common grace that God is restraining his wrath. God hasn't hasn't given you all the bad stuff you deserve, if we're honest. We lament how much the good stuff we feel like we haven't received, but if we're honest on the other side, man, we haven't gotten all the bad that we should have gotten. So even as an unbeliever, even as an enemy of God, God is showing you that my mercy and grace is enough. And he's calling you today to choose him. Choose him. If you are a believer, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, the call is exactly the same. Choose him. Don't let the angels of light, as the Satan likes to appear, don't let opportunities and distractions take you off of course. Be resolved that you will follow God and only God, no matter what the cost is. But the beauty of it is, this is why we need the church, is we do none of this by ourselves. There is an army and a family in this building right now that we get to do this together. So there are days when you are strong and you have a righteous resolve and you are ready to say, God, whatever you want, I'm ready. And that will encourage somebody else. And there are days where you will come in and you will be at your last leg saying it it doesn't feel worth it. God, I'm out of gas. And there will be another brother or another sister who will pick up and carry you that day. That's the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of family. That's what makes all of these things possible is the spirit of God in you and in each other working together so that the Lord's will be done. Pray with me, church.